So I'm going to just say a quick prayer while that's on my mind and calm myself down because I function in on adrenaline, I think, only right now, which is okay. Uh, Father, that's actually not true. I thank you for the Holy Spirit, even who we're going to talk about today. And I know that uh, when we are weak, you are strong. So thank you, Father, that I, I don't have to worry right now because I know you have me. I thank you for the opportunity to speak to a bunch of young people um, that, that are hungry to know the truth of who you are. And I pray for each one that heard the, the message of the gospel this weekend. Pray especially for my nephew, Justin, Lord, and, and I just ask that you might do something in his heart right now um, to change him and to bring him to yourself. And so we ask for your blessing upon what we look at today as well, and thank you, Father, for all the good things you do for us in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we're in the book of Acts. There it is. We did good. Chapter 19 is where we're at. Um, this passage, um, at first glance, seems relatively straightforward. It describes Paul and his interaction with a group of, of what is said to be about 12 guys. So about 12, not 12, about 12. Some people try to say that this, there's some correlation between the 12 apostles and this it doesn't say 12. So I'm not going there. That is a passage though that people use uh, over the years. They've used to come to some theological conclusions about the Holy Spirit, who he is and what he does. And so we're going to just spend a little time this morning diving into that subject. Um, if we're honest, the Holy Spirit is kind of a crazy concept. I can imagine someone who isn't familiar with Christianity kind of saying, you believe what? <laughs> you ever kind of thought that? And, and I'm, I'm glad you asked. Um, because the Bible reveals to us quite a bit about the Holy Spirit. He is God, and as such, He is holy. He is a, the third member of the Trinity and co-equal with the Father and the Son. He possesses the same character and attributes as God the Father and God the Son, though his role is different than theirs. He's not an impersonal force. He's personal. He has a mind, emotions, and a will. He's compared to the wind that blows wherever it wishes. And so he is unseen, but his power is not. And Jesus said that when he would come to indwell believers, that he would convict, guide, comfort, help, and empower, among other things. Now, here's the crazy part. And I just said it already, but the crazy part is that he indwells those who place their faith in Christ for salvation. In John chapter 7, Jesus said this, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were about to receive. This is a hugely significant because ever since the fall of man, when sin entered the world, Man has been separated from intimacy with God. But through faith in the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, we're no longer separated. God makes his dwelling within us through the person of the Holy Spirit. And we get to enjoy the intimacy of his presence every day, kind of like what Adam and Eve got to experience in, in the garden, where God would just walk among them and be with them. But, but he's with us in that way. And this is only possible because of the work of Christ on the cross, where he cleanses us from all of our sin and unrighteousness so that the Holy Spirit can make his home with us, right? The Holy Spirit can't dwell in a place that's not holy, and Christ has made us holy, so that's possible. And a beautiful picture of this occurred when Jesus died on the cross. You remember the, the veil, this thick veil that separated man from the holy place of God? What happened to that thing? <laughs> from top to bottom, the thing gets torn in two as a picture of this, this picture that we now get to we get to now have intimacy with God. That's what Jesus has done for us so that God can make his dwelling 
among us. And so much so that we're even called now the temple of God, which is really a crazy concept to think about. You think about the temple and the Holy of Holies and the fear that people had, you know, to even be around that or the ark. You know, I think of like that, that idea of God's presence dwelling, you know, people even just trying to reach out and steady it or like, you know, smote. And I'm thinking now I'm called the temple of God. Wow. Second Corinthians six sixteen says, for we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. But wait, there's more. Not only does the Holy Spirit make his home within us, but he seals us so that our salvation can't be undone. Boy, I like that. Sealed with a promise, a guarantee that I can't screw it up. I cannot tell you how good that is for me to know this. Ephesians 1.13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. That's, that's good stuff. Throughout the Bible, a seal can communicate ownership or a guarantee of security and protection. So that's just a very brief overview of who the Holy Spirit is and some of what he does, um, which will hopefully help us to better navigate this passage. So we pick things up in verse 1 of chapter 19. Paul has begun his third missionary journey, and he's arrived back at Ephesus. So Acts uh, 19, 1 through 7 is what we're going to read. And it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul passed through the inland country and came to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. And he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And they said, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. And there were about 12 men in all. So depending on how you understand this passage, you can come up with some different ideas about um, when the Holy Spirit comes to a believer and how he impacts their life. Most of the difficulty centers around the word disciples in this passage, because disciples can just mean Christians, which most often in the, in the New Testament, when you, when you hear the word disciples, that's what you go to is Christians. But it can also mean a student or a learner. And so they were, as we'll find out, students of John the Baptist. And that might be all that Luke is meaning when he writes this. They were, they were disciples of John the Baptist, but it doesn't tell us that. And so we're going to consider two possibilities. If you read commentators, they're kind of split down the middle. Some insist on this one and some insist on this one. And, and as we're going to go through this, you'll see that it could possibly be either one. Here are the possibilities to consider, and then we'll talk about the implications of both. The first one is this, that Paul encountered a group of non-Christians who believed in God, but had not yet heard and understood the gospel of salvation. So they, they were, you know, a lot of people say they believe in God, but they're really not Christians. That's, that's one possibility. The second possibility is that Paul encountered a group of Christians who had been believers for a period of time, but had not yet received the Holy Spirit. So the first one we're going to look at is possibility number one. These are non-Christians. Um, it's important to point out that Luke doesn't give us every detail as he, as he goes through the book of Acts. We don't get the whole conversations. We get parts of it, enough to know what, what's going on, but not the whole thing. So there was probably a lot more dialogue that occurred in this than we we're privy to. For instance, it doesn't tell us how Paul came to the conclusion that they were disciples. You know, they might have been all wearing like black door T-shirts 
you know, that says sinners only on him or something like that. Doesn't say, uh, but he, he found out somehow. So what we do see is this, Paul starts to make inquiries to find out more about them, which is something we need to take note of. It's not enough for us to assume that someone is a Christian. Uh, the truth is a lot of people say that they're Christians. And if you're like me, I like that. It's like, Oh, cool. I want to hear that. That's exactly what I want them to tell me when I ask them. It's like, that's the best news I could have ever heard. I'm so happy. I want to give them a hug. And then I think, wait a minute, maybe, maybe they're just saying that and they're not really, you know, so investigating is good because it has eternal consequences, quite frankly. So it's worth it to spend some time finding out about this. Paul does a little digging. He asked the question, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's a great question to ask. Um, asking specific questions can tell you a lot about somebody. I used to work on copiers for a living. And uh, I found that the more diagnostic questions that I asked a customer, the better chance I had of figuring out what was going on. Because whenever I would walk into an office and they would say, you know, I've got these black streaks on my copies, I think it's a bad roller. They would always tell me it's a bad, didn't matter what was going on with the copier, it's probably a bad roller. That was their diagnosis. And if I would have gone on, you know, what they said, I just put new rollers in everything and nothing would really get fixed. So you'd ask questions, you know, um, you know, does, does, does this do it all the time? And they would say, no, it's only when we try to feed this piece of cardboard through is when it jams. Well, it's like, <laughs> it won't do that, even though the salesperson told you it would do that. Don't trust the salesman. Sorry. Does it, does, it, does it do it all the time? Do you hear the noise all the time or only when, it's, when you're making copies? No, when we're just sitting at our desk and it's not doing anything, we hear the noise. Well, it's got to be a fan at that point because that's the only thing running. So these questions would help you figure it out. And in the same way, it's good to ask people questions about their faith, these diagnostic questions. Two diagnostic questions that Evangelism Explosion encourages people to ask when you're talking to them are these. Do you know for sure that when you die, you will be with God in heaven? It's a good question. The second one is this. If God were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Do you know how you would answer those questions? You, you ought to. Because the answers to those will probably give you a pretty good idea of whether or not a person's a Christian. If I were to answer those questions, I would say yes. Yes, I do have full assurance that I will be with God in heaven. And if they ask me why, you know what I would do? I would point to Jesus Christ. That's all I got. You know, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Naked, I come to him for dress. Helpless, I look to him for grace. I'm foul, so I fly to the fountain and I say, wash me, Savior, or I die. That's the song lyric, and I kind of blew it, but I could have sang it, which would have been even worse. But I love that song. How would you answer those questions? Paul um, Ask these guys a different question. You know, how would you answer this question? It's also good. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? I, you know, it's funny because I think a person ought to know the answer to that. It'd be like if I were to ask you, have you ever been married? And you were like, hmm, <laughs> let me think about that and get back to you. You wouldn't expect that. That'd be like, you should know that. You should know that. And you should know whether or not you've received the Holy Spirit. Listen to the, how the disciples that Paul is asking this question to respond. They say, No. We have not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. Well, that's a big red flag. Um, and it's a bit of a strange response, especially because in a minute they're going to identify themselves with John the Baptist and say, you know, if, he, if they were John the Baptist's disciples, this would be pretty frustrating for John the Baptist. I can imagine him going, guys, we covered this. I mean, you know, I baptize with water. One's coming who will baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. I mean, any of that ringing a bell? That's what John taught. 
And, and so we can assume a couple of things here. One is that they were truly ignorant. I don't mean that in a mean way, but like uninformed. They just didn't know. They really didn't know. 20 years had passed probably or since John the Baptist's ministry, and maybe they just never had heard that specific part of it. Another possibility is they weren't, um, they weren't very astute students. I'll say it nicely. And we run into this all the time. And this isn't meant to be critical of any of you because most of you people are really smart and really astute. <laughs> but every once in a while... No, seriously, we'll run into these times where we, I feel like we say a lot of the same things week after week. I mean, we preach Jesus Christ and him crucified. And every once in a while, like somebody that's been here for two or three years will come up and be like, I heard something today that sounded really unique and strange. Do you mean to tell me that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins? And if I trust in him by faith, I can receive eternal life. And it's like, yes, that is what we said today. <laughs> you know, And that's what we say every week. But the truth is these things are spiritually discerned. And, and sometimes the lights just come on. And so we don't know how that works. And maybe, maybe it was something like that. The lights hadn't come on yet. Maybe they actually meant something like they knew, they knew. It's hard to imagine somebody who believed in God and was familiar with John the Baptist in the Old Testament, not ever hearing about the Holy Spirit. So maybe they mean something like, you know, hey, we had no idea that that, that had gone down, that this idea that the Holy Spirit had come is now a thing. We didn't know that was, you know, happening yet. It's possible. We don't know for sure. But upon hearing them say that they haven't heard about the Holy Spirit, Paul gives them a follow-up question. He does more digging. And he said, into what then were you baptized? And they said, into John's baptism. And this is where the light could go on for Paul. Ah, okay. This seems to indicate that they haven't moved beyond that. John the Baptist's ministry was to pave the way for the one who would come. And so in verse Paul or in verse 4, Paul explains this to them. He says, look, John baptized with the baptism of repentance, telling people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. So he explains this is what you're involved in. This is what's going on. John's ministry uh, involved baptism of repentance. Repentance is the idea that you have a change of mind that results in a change of action. So you're going this way and you realize this isn't working and you do a 180, not a 360. I still hope people say that. If you do a 360, you didn't do anything except for turn around. But if you do a 180, things are good. So that's repentance. And we walk in that. We keep walking in it. So he explains that to them. Uh, John's ministry was just to point people to the Messiah, the answer. They know there's something wrong. These disciples clearly knew something needed to change. They were looking for an answer. They just hadn't quite connected the dots to Jesus yet. And I, and I feel like there's a lot of people that are in that same boat. Maybe you're in that same spot. You know a change is in order, but you haven't really figured out what to do about it. And Jesus is the answer to that question. That's where the dots lead. You fall on your face before your Savior and, and throw up the white flag and say, I'm yours. Okay, so the minute Paul explains that Jesus was the answer they were looking for, we read, we read this in verse five. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they began speaking in tongues and prophesying. There were about 12 men in all. So if Paul were to ask them the same question now, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? What do you think they'd say now? <laughs> and how, you know, yes. There, any uncertainty that was there before, that's gone, right? They know. Now, not everybody will speak in tongues and prophesy when they become Christians, but everybody will experience signs of life. Because if you were spiritually dead and now you're resurrected and made alive, you ought to notice that, right? Second Corinthians 5.17 says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, all things have become new. So what are some of the signs of life? Side effects can include love, 
joy, peace, new desires, a love for God's people, and a desire to share his love with others, like Susan was just talking about. Some people receiving new life experience tongue loosening and prophetic speech. I couldn't help but think of those dumb commercials you see all the time with the side effects. It's like different things, but you will see signs of life. And that's because of what was promised in Ezekiel hundreds of years before this. In Ezekiel 36, verse 26, God said, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. So obedience is a sign of life. And this is true. I remember I became a Christian at 19, and for the first time, 19 years of my life, I had no desire to walk in obedience, to honor God the Father, to do anything that pleased Him. I was afraid of doing things that would get me in trouble, but I, had, I didn't have this desire like, I want to I please you. I want my life to be like an offering. I want to worship you. That wasn't there, and that all changed when that happened. Okay, so that's possibility number one. These guys were primed and ready. Uh, we call them pre-Christians, right? But they weren't Christians yet. And when they heard the rest of the story, they believed, they were baptized. So, so they were disciples of John the Baptist when Paul got there that day. When Paul left that day, they were disciples of Jesus, okay? So we're going to consider another possibility, kind of like, you remember when movies used to have alternate endings? You could watch the movie, and if you didn't like it, you could, like, choose the alternate ending and check out another version. Okay, here's your possible alternate ending. So clear your mind of that scenario for a minute and try this one on. Possibility two is that they were Christians who had not yet received the Holy Spirit. So Paul strolls into town, comes across a group of about 12 Christian guys. He walks up to them, sizes them up, and asks, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? First off, what would, what would prompt Paul to ask a group of Christians that question? I just, it's funny to me to think about that. You like, you look over, it's like, were they all like, you know, bikers on Harleys or something like that, or some, you know, rough crowd? I don't know. Uh, some commentators reason that Paul must have seen something in their looks or their behavior to just question the Spirit's presence. Um, I, I'm, it's funny to think about because I imagine somebody coming up to me and like looking me up and down. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed, Brent? Yeah, I didn't think so. I mean, it's like, a, it's like, what would that even mean? You know, it doesn't sound good. I don't think we should be doing that probably. Now, some of you may be familiar with this teaching that Christians have um, an access to a second blessing, also referred to as the baptism of the Holy Spirit sometimes. And this is one of the main passages that they use to arrive at that conclusion. The idea of this second blessing uh, is um, that it occurs after our normal conversion and then it propels us into a better state of Christianity where we are on fire for God, no pun intended. But that's, that's the phrase we use, okay? Extreme versions of this belief teach that we can even achieve like a perfected life of sinlessness because of it. So that would mean that there are two kinds of Christians. There's regular Christians and there's spirit-filled Christians. Sort of like a first and second class scenario. Literally the haves and the have-nots, right? Is that what this passage is teaching us? And I would, I would say wholeheartedly no. I don't believe that's what this passage is teaching us, especially in light of other scriptures like Romans 8, 9. It says, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Or like the passage I read earlier in Ephesians 1, 13, that says, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So God promised to never leave us and forsake us. If we are sealed when we believed, he doesn't have to re-gift 
the Holy Spirit. It doesn't leave us and come back and leave us and come back. Even though sometimes it might feel that way experientially, that doesn't happen. When we become Christians, we receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. We are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Now, I actually believe it's harmful to create kind of an us and them distinction within the church because it causes pride for the person that's, you know, received a second blessing. They can walk around like, you know, with a superiority kind of thing. It causes jealousy for those who haven't. And it ultimately causes division because it's based on this idea that I'm spirit filled and you all are just basic. You know, that's kind of a weird thing. This also encourages Christians to pretend to be extra spiritual, to throw off, you know, the spirit filled Christians. It's like, well, I don't want to, I don't want to appear like I'm just basic. So I'll really do it up, you know? And I remember going to, I'm not picking on any, anybody. I remember going to church with a family in Seattle one time. Uh, we, I was there visiting and they were all getting ready to go to church. And I'd been with them for a couple of days before Sunday and I watched them interact with each other. And I would not have, I would not have said they were spirit filled. Uh, at least not the spirit of God. They were, they were rough. They were mean to each other. They were kind of the stuff they were doing while I was there. I just remember thinking, are these guys even Christians? And then we pulled into the church parking lot on Sunday morning and you wouldn't believe what happened. I mean, it was like, what, what am I, what am I witnessing right now? Everything changed. And about the time we left the church is when it went back the other way again. And I remember kind of scratching my head and thinking, Hmm, this is weird, but I believe this is kind of the pressure we put on people sometimes to have this emotional experience or connection or, or something. And so we try to drum it up and, and we're going to get to this in a minute, but I understand why. And I want to talk about that in a minute, but, um, so we aren't competing against each other. If, if one of you is just walking with the Lord and on fire for God in some way and doing something great, that's a win for all of us. It shouldn't be a competitive thing. We should be happy to see people really pressing into Christ and really doing well in their walks. Okay, there's a variation to possibility number two that I think can work, does work. Um, it's a little mind-bendy, though, so it's, it's kind of you know red pill, blue pill thing, so get ready for this. It's not that mind-bendy, but it's weird. We need to keep in mind that this was a unique time in history that bridged the gap between the Old Testament era and the New Testament era. So people have always been saved by faith. So we look back to it. They look forward to it. So if that, I want you to see that. So if this is the cross and I'm here in time, I look back by faith to what Jesus did on the cross and I'm saved. Abraham, he looked forward to Jesus on the cross and was saved by faith. So both of us had faith that was credited to us as righteousness. That's always been the way people have been saved. The difference is that the indwelling of the Holy Spirit wasn't available until after Jesus ascended. Until he was glorified, we couldn't receive the, the Spirit. He says that in John 7. Whoever believes in me, as the Scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Okay? So these guys might have been part of this transitional group that Pentecost hadn't quite caught up with yet, if that makes sense. Okay, I told you it was a little weird. Uh, one commentator describes it as, as uh, expanding concentric circles. So first the Jews in Jerusalem, and then the Samaritans, and then the Gentiles, and now out to the farthest reaches. Kind of that idea. So maybe Acts chapter, you know, Jerusalem, the Acts 1-8, when they're, you know, the Pentecost day, that shows you that what happened to the Jews. 
They receive the Spirit. All these things happen. Then you see it in chapter 8 where it happens to the Samaritans. They needed to be fully included in the church. So the Jews had to see that what happened to the Samaritans, hey, that's the same thing that happened to us. We're the same. And then you see it happen to the Gentiles with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10. Again, the Jews are there. They see it. Oh, what happened to them is the same thing that happened to us. We're the same. And now it's quite possible that this is what we're seeing here. Another time where a group is included, fully included in the church, they see the same things. This would also explain why they spoke in tongues and prophesied like they did in those other situations. It's also interesting to point out that it was always a group of people, never an individual. Just pointing it out. I'm not trying to make a case here, but it's interesting because we try to individualize it. It was always a group and there was always an apostle present. So in each of those instances, those are the distinctions. So if position is two is correct, either one of those things that I talked about, and I think the first part that I talked about, I already said I don't agree with. But if if this is correct, I believe that it's meant to be descriptive and not prescriptive. Okay, in other words, it's telling us what happened, not what to expect. Sometimes when we read the Bible, it's descriptive. Sometimes it's prescriptive. I think this is just describing this. Okay, so that was all kind of technical. Now I want to get to something kind of practical. Um, when discussing this topic, the question usually arises, what about people who have the experience that seems to agree with the idea of a second blessing? What do we do with that? There are a lot of people who describe a time when everything in their life changed and they don't know how to explain it or what it was, but something significant happened and everything changed. How do we explain this biblically? And I'm going to try to say it this way. I've already said that I believe when we become Christians, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. Okay? Sealed. He's there. There are times, though, where we are filled with the Holy Spirit. And I believe that's an ongoing process. And filled to me means, so if if I'm a glass of water, if Brent's, here's my glass of water imitation. If I'm a glass of water, right, and I'm full of Brent, you pour the Holy Spirit in there, you fill, it displaces Brent, and now I'm filled with the Spirit. That's what I want to have happen all the time. Okay, I'm still there. It doesn't work as well with the glass because what happened to Brent? I know you're thinking that, you know, now he's all over the floor. So a balloon works better. <laughs> I'm sorry. A balloon works better because it, it keeps the air in there. So, you know, Brent's in there, and then pff, Holy Spirit, and then pff, Brent's in there again. I don't know. You can kind of noodle that through and figure it out. I didn't have more time to come up with a good, a good idea there. So sorry. Uh, the idea is, though, that, um, you know, one of us is in control. And, and unfortunately, most often it seems to be me in that spot. So, so how do we explain this then? So this idea of, uh, of, of a second blessing could be explained in, in the sense that sometimes the Holy Spirit comes on us for empowerment, for a specific ministry task or something like that. So kind of like Acts 1.8, you will be filled. You will be my witnesses. I will do this thing. I, it's funny because um, I was really hoping, you know, last night when I was working with a youth to have this thing where all of a sudden just like, you know, you know, Holy Ghost powers flowing out of me. And I didn't have it last night. Uh, in the morning, I felt like, man, this is just going to be amazing. And I couldn't wait for that evening. And I got there and it was just like, you know, if you were to ask me, I'd be like, eh, wasn't that great. Now, I don't know what God did there. And I don't know what the Holy Spirit did. He might've done amazing things in their lives, but it wasn't one of those times where I just thought, this is amazing. There's times when you sing a worship song and it's just like, man, I'm just singing a worship song. There's other times when it feels like there's like something coming out of you almost. It's like, what is happening right now? You're filled with this presence and this, you know, that can happen. You can get this season of closeness to God. A brother just recently was talking about how he was just miserable all night. And, and he woke up that morning, went on the deck and he sat in the sun and he just started praying. And all of a sudden he felt like God's presence just wrapped him like a blanket, he said. And I thought, you know, that's just sometimes we get that. And I believe that's more of, the, of what we would call filling. 
The other way we can explain this idea of a second blessing is that it could actually be conversion. <laughs> and I know that sounds weird, but when we try to, when somebody says they want a second blessing, a lot of times we'll tell them all of the steps basically to come to Christ and to receive him as Lord. And that could be what's going on. Quite frankly, that's what happened to John Wesley. I don't know if you've heard the story of John Wesley, who's one of the, you know, one of the great theologians and, and pastors and preachers. Um, he and his brother Charles wrote a bunch of good hymns that we like to sing, but he was actually uh, born uh, his dad was a pastor or a minister, I think they called him. Um, and he became a, an ordained minister. Uh, I think it was in 1725 or so, but he actually didn't become a Christian until 1738. <laughs> kind of weird to think about, right? <laughs> 13 years as a pastor and you're not a Christian yet. He describes his conversion. Uh, he wrote this in his journal uh, on the night of May 24th, 1738. He says, in the evening, I went very unwillingly, I love that because I've done that a lot. I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for salvation. And assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. And that's when John Wesley says he became a Christian. It was evident. It's like I said, have you, did you, have you received the Holy Spirit when you believe? He knew it then. Before that, he didn't. Everything changed for him at that moment. And so I think it's possible that those who think they're receiving a second blessing are really experiencing a first blessing without knowing it. I know that when I became a Christian all the way back in 1986, November 5th, I remember it because it was one of those night and day kind of things that happened. Uh, everything changed. The impact that the Holy Spirit made in my life was night and day. People actually looked at me and went, what happened? My mom and dad that night saw me and said, it's funny, they, I'm not trying to incriminate myself, but they'd missed all the other times I walked into the house this way. That night I walk in and they said, have you been doing drugs? <laughs> <laughs> it's like now, you know, now you ask, but they could see, they could see something was different. And I saw, I remember seeing it too. And I don't want you to think that there's, this is going to happen to everybody. Cause I thought this is what's going to happen. I remember the night I got on my knees and I fully surrendered to Christ when I, I, I was shaking like a leaf. I felt like there was, you know, the room wasn't cold at all, but, but I remember that. And I remember when I stood up after I prayed, there was a mirror there in the room and I, I looked at myself and I was new. I saw it, you know, it was like, I couldn't be. It couldn't have been more clear. And other people saw it too, because I was a jerk. My brother saw it. My mom and dad saw it. Everything started to change. Signs of life began to happen. And I know that's not everybody's experience. Sometimes it's more gradual, but you got to see something there, I would think. For me, all of a sudden, I was continually aware of God's presence in a way that I never had been before. I would go through my day and he was always there. You know, sometimes it was, <laughs> sometimes it was conviction. You know, sometimes it was comfort. Sometimes it was power. Sometimes it was guidance. Sometimes it was help. But he was always there. And I knew it in a different way than before. But sadly, over time, somehow, we can grow cold to that. We can start to almost not notice it anymore, which is just heartbreaking. When I think about people losing their first love, I think of this. It's like, how can we, how can we start to just take the intimacy of God for granted? How can we act like that's just mundane or ho-hum? Throughout my walk, there have been times when the presence of God's Spirit within me had been undeniable and just so tangible. And then there's other times, honestly, where I've, I've wondered if I'm a Christian at all, you know. 
That doesn't mean the Holy Spirit left the building. That means that Brent's sitting in his chair again. That's, that's what that means. So there are going to be times when we need to be displaced and allow the Holy Spirit to fill us completely. It doesn't mean he wasn't there. He's always there. But that displacement needs to take place. This is the way Ephesians 5.18 says it. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Kind of an interesting thought. Get drunk with the Spirit, right? Not, don't get crazy. We're not, that's not, some people take it a different way. But the idea is this, this present tense verb that's used here means be continually being filled with the Spirit. That's a weird sentence, but be continually being filled with the Spirit. So it's not a one and done thing. Indwelling is a one and done thing. Filling is, is to me a continual quest. So I like what D.A. Carson says about this. Um, if you're familiar with him, you'll appreciate that I'm going to paraphrase it a little bit because I remember when we went and saw him speak one time, he would say what he wanted to say, and then he would say, in other words, and then I would listen to that one and be like, and then he would say, in other words, and about the third or fourth in other words, I'm like, oh, okay, I see what you're saying. So he's a smart guy. I like what he says here, though, and I am paraphrasing a bit. This is in his book called Showing the Spirit, page 160, if you want to actually read his words. But he basically says this, although I find no biblical support for a second blessing theology, I do find support for a second, third, fourth, or fifth blessing theology. Although I find no biblical support for a second baptism of the Spirit, I do find that there are degrees of unction, blessing, service, and holy joy, along with some more currently celebrated gifts associated with those whose hearts have been specifically touched by the sovereign God. And then I really like this one. Although I think it extremely dangerous to pursue a second blessing attested by tongues, I think it no less dangerous not to pant after God at all. And to be satisfied with a merely creedal Christianity that is kosher, but complacent, orthodox, but ossified, sound, but soundly asleep. That's good stuff. And I think, is that what I want to settle for as a Christian? No. No, I want more of God. I want all of God. I want to be filled with his presence. I want to be useful to him. And that means that I must decrease so that he can increase. To come full circle back to John the Baptist, that's what he said. Who doesn't want more of God's spirit? Who doesn't want to experience the blessing of his presence and the power that he gives us to be victorious over sin and, and to be used for his glory? Um, seek to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I don't know what you want to call it. It's funny because I think, you know, He's basically saying the second blessing teaching is theologically incorrect, but it's spiritually understandable. So I understand why people want to come to a theology like this, just not theologically accurate. But the idea that we can have more of God is something we should all long for. So I'm going to pray. Father, I picture Moses uh, just saying, Lord, can I get a glimpse of your glory? Can I just see a little bit of who you are? Um, Father, may we all have this desire to know you and to understand that we can have this intimacy and this personal relationship with you that is better than anything else out there. Lord, when we have that, we have value. We have significance. We have, we know we're loved. We know we're safe. We know we're protected. We know we have a purpose. We know we have a future. These are all things we long for as people and we can have them in you through Christ Jesus himself. So thank you that you sent your son to die on our behalf and that by placing our faith and trust in that work alone, we can have life with you and we can have the presence of your, your Holy Spirit within us, dwelling within us, filling us. 
Uh, Father, I just pray that if there's anybody here that doesn't understand that or know it, that today might be the day they throw up the white flag and connect the dots to Jesus Christ. And I ask that in his name. Amen.